Thanks for coming back. When I told that story about um, the football game in, in Nebraska um, 28 years ago, I left out one part that I wanted to, uh, the reason I told the story is my wife and I had gotten married just a few months before that. We married when we were 12 years old, and that's, that's why <laughs> we've been married 28 years. But um, anyway, um, she was also at the game, and she was not wearing red. She was wearing, in fact, a burnt orange jersey. And on the back of the jersey had the number two, which was the number that I was wearing on the field. And in fact, above the, the number two, it, it said, had the letters Lungard, spelling out Lungard, which I also had on my jersey. And there were a couple of uh, Cornhusker fans behind her who were inebriated. And, and yet, in their state of intoxication, they were able to figure out that she was the punter's wife, because my, my wife was pretty vocal. She was a cheerleading captain in high school and all that sort of thing. So, so um, they began to say derogatory things about the punter and, and actually calling on the Cornhuskers to do things to the punter that, that really upset my wife. <laughs> and you don't want to upset her. But I was just wondering, no one in here was, was sitting behind someone in a burnt orange jersey on that day, were you? I'm looking for you. <laughs> well, I may have misled you in the first hour when I told you, or at least I allowed you to believe, that the reason that my sons are good at video games is because they have this abstract concept of, of a mission and an end and a purpose in, in, in their video games, and they have some philosophical understanding of the game and the objective. Um, there's actually another reason, and this other reason, I think, contributes more to, uh, uh, to their success, if you'll show it. That's not it. Next one. Yeah, next one. Okay, there we go. Does anybody else do this? Yeah, you go on these websites... And, and uh, you can go to the next slide. You go to these websites and you find uh, cheats for your video games. The Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers cheats in it. And it will tell you certain things that will enable you to win the game. Really? No. No way. You have to win before you activate the cheats? Oh. Well... Okay, I guess I'm through. <laughs> well, let's pretend he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Someone here doesn't know what he's talking about. But um, anyway, I was talking to my son the other day, and I said, well, well, what do you get when you go to these websites? What do they tell you? What, what, do, they, what do they help you to do? And he said, well, you can activate some un- unadvertised features. You can turn on something called immortality or unlimited lives. So if you... Invincibility, okay. All right. All right. Invincibility. Invincibility is a good word. Um, I chose the word immortality because I wanted you to kind of think about spiritual things as well. But um, so you can turn on invisibility. And uh, uh, so you can turn on invincibility. So even if you even if you get killed, yeah, you know, you get to live again, that kind of thing. Or you can't get killed or what you can probably tell me, but but that's OK. Uh, anyway, so another one is you can enable the feature of unlimited ammunition, right? Yeah. Yeah. So axes, arrows, whatever you can. You can turn that on so that you have unlimited ammo and you can also enable uh, or you can also find out certain keys to the game. You know, when you're lost or something, it tells you how to how to get out of this particular place. And this makes a really nice, handy little outline for, for the first part of, of our talk because it doesn't really take much imagination to figure out that these sorts of things uh, are actually analogous to our struggle with the enemy within, our struggle against the flesh. And these kind of things would actually come in handy, wouldn't they? So let's go to the next slide. I'm here to tell you that uh, in your struggle against the flesh, flesh, you are immortal or invincible. You're immortal. Um, when you're playing a game and you know you can't die, 
then it gives you some confidence to go into attack monsters that you think you would never even have a chance against. Because you know that they can't whoop you. And even if they do, depending on how the game is rigged, uh, even if they do, you can get back up and fight them again. And, and the more you go at them repeatedly, knowing that you, that you can't be destroyed by them, you learn more about them and you can eventually get past them. You don't have to be overly cautious and timid. You, can, you have more confidence in the game and you know that when you get knocked down, you'll get back up again. I think that this is the practical value of the doctrine, or one of the practical values, of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. However you want to, whatever terminology you want to use to describe that doctrine, that great teaching, that when God saves his people, he gives them eternal life. And when he takes hold of you, he doesn't let go. And you cannot fall ultimately and fully away from God once you are born again. He saves you by grace and he keeps you by his grace. He welcomes you as a father. He adopts you as his child and he will not disown you, period. Part of the uh, assurance that he offers us when he saves us is that he will pick us up when we fall, no matter how many times we fall. Proverbs 24, 16 says, the righteous falls seven times and rises again. Now, seven times isn't a limit. You only get seven shots here. Now, that's not it. Of course, it's a number representing fullness. It indicates that no matter how many times the righteous stumble, they will get back up again. Not because of some inherent goodness or or because of their own strength, but because God will lift them up. There's a classic, our classic example of a man of faith who fell very hard is Peter. When, in spite of his great love for Jesus and his willingness even to fight for Jesus, a mere fisherman drawing his sword to go and whack off the ear of a soldier, he ended up by denying with oaths that he even knew Jesus. But listen to what Jesus told him before he fell in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, and you is in the plural here, speaking of the disciples, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, singular, now addressed to Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I really like that tenderness of Jesus. Simon, Simon. And he's tender, even knowing full well what Peter's about to do. This is a great part of Christ's work as our priest to pray for us that even when we fall into sin, we will not fall away completely, but we will turn again. Next slide, please. My little children, John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Paul says, In Romans chapter 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is our advocate. He has prayed for us, and he is praying for us. And he specifically prays for us that when we fall, we will get back up, and that we will turn again, and we will return and strengthen our brothers and sisters. And in that sense, we are invincible. And I've even got that word here in my notes, invincible. So I got the right word, all right? Yeah. But it's very good at this point to interject a little warning about this. This confidence, this assurance that we have that we're invincible in the struggle is not a license to rush headlong into temptation because we're sure that we'll be forgiven. The scriptures call this tempting God, and it's forbidden. Satan tried to get Jesus to do this in the wilderness, but Jesus saw through his deception, and he resisted him and rebuked him. We have to be very careful here, and I think that I failed at just this point 
some years ago. I had been struggling with a particular sin and I had been defeated repeatedly in this. And and yet, by God's grace, he showed me what sort of situations I was getting myself into that was leading to this particular sin. And there was a particular day, and I remember it very well, in which I knew later in that day I was going to be in that kind of a situation. And I was going to fall. I was, I was going to be subject to that temptation. And so what did I do? I prayed. And I prayed for a long time. And I believe I prayed even with tears that God would protect me against that temptation. And guess what happened? I sinned. I fell just as I had before. Was God unfaithful? Well, I thought for for some time that he was, in fact. Why didn't he hear my prayer? Why didn't he answer my prayer? Why didn't he prevent what was going on? He had, uh, but I realized later that he had given me everything that I needed to resist this temptation. By his grace, I knew exactly what was happening. I knew what was going to happen uh, before I even entered into this situation. And I could have very easily not have gone into that situation and faced that. He gave me all of that. And yet, I marched right in. Instead of walking away, I walked right in. And in a sense, I tempted God. I challenged him, as it were, to keep me from sinning. I demanded that he take the responsibility for my actions. Christ taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Now, after we have prayed that, does it make any sense for us to throw ourselves into temptation? It is absurd after we pray this way to lead ourselves into temptation, whether it's by walking into a brothel or a bakery Or a bookstore. A bookstore. That was supposed to be a little bit humorous about the kind of (laughs) temptations that some people face when they walk into a... Well, second. Next slide. In your struggle against the flesh, you are armed with unlimited ammunition. You've probably seen this phenomenon when you watched action movies, like maybe The Matrix. That's a scene from The Matrix video game or something, um, uh, where the action hero has a little handgun and he can just keep shooting and shooting and shooting against somebody, a bunch of people, a bunch of goons with machine guns, and he just mows them down with his little handgun that uh, apparently never runs out of bullets. Um, that's fantasy. But I'm here to tell you that in the battle against the flesh, that fantasy becomes real for us. It becomes absolutely real because we have unlimited ammunition. In John 3.34, John 3.34 says this about Jesus. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Now, this could, of course, refer to the Father's empowering the ministry of Jesus by the Spirit, or it could refer to Jesus' giving the Spirit without measure to his disciples to empower them. And I'm kind of a, a both-and sort of guy, so I think, I think probably both of those are intended by this verse. I know that Jesus in Acts 1.8 said that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit came on us, and I believe that that power of the Spirit is without bound. More specifically, God declares that he has given us all things that we need to defeat the flesh. In 1 Peter chapter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you're going to have life and godliness, we've already established that you have to mortify the flesh. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, because of the flesh. Paul declares something very similar in his confidence when he tells the Corinthians, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
to escape temptation is to defeat the flesh. Paul says that in any temptation, God provides exactly what we need in order to defeat the flesh and endure the temptation. But he insists, Paul insists, that we don't receive this passively. It's something that we have to take hold of. He says, therefore, flee from idolatry. I didn't flee. Next slide, please. Unlimited ammunition is, of course, useless to anyone who refuses to pull the trigger. So what if your gun is full of ammunition, if you never pull the trigger? And the means that God has given us to overcome the flesh will likewise be ineffective as long as we fail to or refuse to take hold of them and use them. In addition, unlimited ammunition is almost useless to someone who may be pulling the trigger but doesn't have the self-discipline doesn't have the training, doesn't have the patience, perhaps, to take aim. You have to learn how to use a weapon, and you have to learn how to use it well. To see how this works in our lives, let's consider the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 5. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. God has indeed stocked our arsenal with everything that we need to overcome the flesh, prayer and meditation, the preaching of the word and communion with Christ. Worship and fellowship, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, godly counselors, mentors, parents, and friends, elders, pastors, and teachers, confession and forgiveness. And, of course, he's given us himself. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And although all these means of grace will help you to grow, as even if you receive them somewhat passively by osmosis, as it were, The growth, if you receive them passively, will be very, very slow. As the writer to the Hebrews said, by this time you ought to be teachers. You ought to be much farther along than you are, he says. And if you want to be mature, you will have to train yourself by constant practice. Now, when I say constant practice, or when he says constant practice, maybe... Some of you wives are thinking back to those video games and you're thinking of late at night, your husband won't come to bed because he's on the Xbox or on the PC. He's in the other room and he's he's tapping away or he's got the joystick going and and you're saying, honey, when will you come to bed? And he said, oh, I'm on level 31 for the first time and I'm going to beat this game. He doesn't know about the cheats yet. See, and I'm going to get it. And, And besides, there's this guy online I'm playing against. He's in South Africa and he can only be on for another hour. So. Um, Now, it's easy for some people to dedicate themselves, to give their whole lives to perfecting uh, their mastery of a video game. It's like swimming downstream, if you will. There's no resistance to that. But if you determine to dedicate yourself to mastering the means of grace in order to put to death the flesh, then you can expect resistance. Your flesh just really won't be up for that. So you better brace yourself. Fight or no fight, the constant practice and the painstaking discipline is demanded of us. Consider one example, just the way that we handle the word of God as a weapon against the flesh. Reading the Bible is a good thing, right? Yeah, reading the Bible is good. And I, and I think um, we're encouraged to read the Bible. You might read a verse a day, a chapter a day. Uh, You might read through the Bible in a year. You might have some sort of plan that enables you to do that. But really, reading the Bible without meditating and reflecting on it is only brushing up against the Word of God. It might make us familiar, will make us familiar with the content, we hope, but it doesn't really enable us to master it or really to be mastered by it. We need to go further. We need to go into meditation. Meditation and memorization. uh, Well, meditation requires memorization and it requires time for reflection. 
It requires increasing skills in interpretation because not every passage of the Bible is as clear as every other passage of the Bible. Even determining the meaning, though, is not enough. You have to go further. You have to reflect. You have to learn how to meditate, not just on the word, but to meditate on your own life. You have to meditate on what the scriptures mean and what they're saying and what's going on in your life and see where those intersect. And that point of intersection is where the Bible, uh, where, where God speaks to you and directs you and transforms you. You have to ask the Spirit to show you how his word intersects with your life in order to encourage you or rebuke you, to correct you, to train you how to think, how to act, how to feel like Jesus Christ, to be conformed into his image. And it's not easy, and this is the work of a lifetime, but that's what we must do, be trained in use of these weapons, even though we have unlimited ammunition. Next slide. In your struggle against the flesh, you also have access to the secrets of the battle. So my son Ethan told me that one of the things that he gets when he goes to these cheat sites is a special kind of knowledge about the game. Because you might be lost in the game. You don't know how to move forward. You don't know how to get out of a certain room. You don't, you don't know where the door is, and, and the cheats can help you to do that. Or, or maybe you can't beat some enemy. And maybe you learn on the cheat site that when a certain part of his armor uh, changes color, it becomes vulnerable and you can attack it at that point. So this deeper understanding of the way the game works uh, really enables you to be uh, a better video game player or to beat this game by cheating, but to beat this game. And what we're going to spend the rest of our time on this morning is to talk about that deeper understanding that God has given us about the way that our flesh works in order that we can defeat the flesh. John Owen says that when a soul has been successfully tempted to sin, it has been deceived. Deceit is the very nature of temptation. It's the primary way not just the flesh, but the world and the devil work as well. And what is deceit? Well, has anybody ever heard of Peter Popoff? You have. Next slide, please. Peter Popoff. In the 1980s at ministry conventions, Peter Popoff uh, would accurately state the home addresses and specific illnesses of different audience members. And this feat, he allowed the people to believe, was due to immediate divine revelation. His apparent powers helped him to develop quite a following and a following that enabled him to rake in boatloads of money. But maybe you heard about what happened in 1987 to Peter Popoff. Has anyone heard of the great Randy? All right. The great Randy was watching Popoff on TV. Popoff. That's just really a strange name. He was watching uh, Peter on TV. And he noticed that this great, powerful healer was wearing a hearing aid. Well, that made uh, Randy a little, uh, James Randy, a little bit specific, uh, suspicious. And so he went to one of these conventions and he had a, a device, uh, a, a different, checking different radio frequencies. And, and he picked up a transmission, which was actually Peter Popoff's wife off stage uh, speaking to Popoff. And he was listening and they had, before the convention, gone around, gone around and collected information from, from different people, which enabled him, of course, to have these miraculous insights when he was talking to these people. Well, Randy went on The Tonight Show and exposed uh, what was going on. And within a year, uh, Popoff had declared bankruptcy. A lot of people dropped supporting him. However, that was 1987. Uh, tax records indicate that in the year 2004, his ministry brought in $16 million. So what is deceit? New, uh, New Oxford Dictionary there. To trap or overcome by trickery, to take unawares by craft or guile, to lead astray, to cause to believe what is false, to delude, to take in. I think this is the art of deception, to 
make someone believe that things are other than they are in order to get them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. For example, Popoff wanted people's money, right? So he had to make them believe that things were other than they are, that he had this power, which he could then help them with if they would just give him enough money. And so they did something that they wouldn't normally do. Uh, Deception is persuasion or even salesmanship, if you will. No offense to any salesman here. Uh, Using lies, half lies and distortions. Popoff wanted and he still wants money. He wants other people's money and he knows that they won't just walk up and give it to him. So the way that he goes after their money instead of giving them a, a useful product He knows that if he can make them believe that he has some extraordinary power from God that can rub off on them or somehow help them if he gives them this little bottle of whatever it is that he sends to them, um, then they'll give him $16 million a year. I don't know if that's net or gross, but it it doesn't really matter. So the, the, the followers of Peter Popoff have been deceived in such a way that makes us laugh in disbelief that these people could be so gullible. But before we laugh too hard at them, we've got to remember that every time we obey the law of sin within us, we have been deceived, we have been gullible in a much worse way than they have. Next slide. Remember that Paul said in Romans 7, the very thing I hate, I do. Now, as a new creature in Christ, he does not want to sin against his God, and neither do you. But the flesh uses deception in order to make us believe that things are other than they really are, in order to persuade us to do something we wouldn't otherwise do. So to understand how the flesh dupes us, we're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 14, 15. And uh, this outlines a, a, the anatomy of sin's disca- uh, deception, seduction, as John Owen outlines it in his works. Each person is tempted when he is lured or dragged away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James says that a sinner is hoodwinked, fooled, by the desires of his own flesh. And he helps us to unmask the Peter Popoff within by exposing what the flesh wants and how it goes about getting it from us. First of all, the thing that we need to understand, these are those secrets of the game, if you will. The first thing we need to know is that the goal that the flesh aims at is death. Uh, verse 15. While you're trying to mortify the flesh, the flesh is trying to mortify you. Whatever sin may promise you in its sales pitch, the great um, pleasures that it lays out before you, the end will really only be death. The flesh will often try to convince you that he's really your friend, that he's just trying to, to make you happy. What's wrong with that? But this really is a war. And he really is trying to pull the wool over your eyes to make you think that he's on your side. In the end, though, when he gets close enough to you, he will stab you in the back. So our first cheat, as far as knowledge goes here, is to know that our enemy is after. What his chief end is after. The flesh begins with the end in mind. And the end that he is after is our spiritual death, our slavery to sin. It is a means of arming ourselves against deceit to know what it is after. If you walk into Peter Popoff's convention knowing full well that he's out to deceive you in order to get your money, then you will be armed against him. Now, I still can't explain how $16 million after he's been fully exposed and everyone in the world can look on the Internet and see what a fraud he is. That just shows you. Well, never mind what it shows you. But be warned. Just knowing, just knowing this, that sin, that uh, the flesh wants your death, is not enough to keep us from ever falling prey to its flesh's game, uh, to, to its game again. Just like people fall for Peter Popoff. There's another sad example in the scriptures. Cain, remember him? Cain was fuming. 
after his brother's sacrifice had been accepted by God. And God came to speak to him. And God told Cain exactly this cheat. He told him what the flesh was after. Uh, so imagine this, God coming to you and telling you exactly what the flesh is trying to do. God said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So what if someone told you that, hey, when you go into your house tonight, there's going to be someone hiding behind the door and he's waiting there to whack you over the head? Well, don't you think you would probably do something about that? That would be a good warning, wouldn't it? It would be helpful. And yet we know what Cain did and we know what what we often do. We often think, oh, no, he's not really hiding behind the door to whack me over the head. He knows it's my birthday and he's there to have a surprise party for me. Well, second, go to the next slide, please. The way that the flesh works in its deceit is by temptation. Hey, that's, you know, you came all the way to a conference to hear that. Um, Everybody knows that. The essence of temptation is deceit. And James lists what uh, John Owen calls five degrees of temptation in these verses. The first degree, as Owen outlines this, is dragging away the mind from its duty, enticing or entangling the affections, conceiving sin in the will, and then the birth of sin in actions, words, thoughts, and so on, and then death by sin, enslavement to sin is spiritual death. So this first degree relates to the mind. The mind is dragged away from its duties as watchman over the soul. The second aims at the affections, the emotions, if you will, the longings and desires of our hearts when those become entangled. The third uh, degree of temptation overcomes the will, the consent of sin, the conception of sin in the heart. The fourth is when that sin is actually born out into the world in your actions and so on and disrupts your life. And then the fifth is the uh, is actually the goal of the flesh enslavement, enslavement to sin, which is spiritual death. Now, we're only going to look at the first three because the fifth doesn't happen to Christians Although it feels like that at times, we are not, sin is not our master, right? We are under grace. And, and by God's grace, um, actually, uh, the fourth, the birth of sin in our lives, um, although that does happen by God's grace, it doesn't happen as often. But really, once you understand those first three, in fact, once you have uh, been ente- uh, enticed or dragged away, enticed, and in your will you have conceived of sin, you've really already sinned, sinned, right? If your will gives consent to sin, you have sinned. That's why Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. Even though you may not have the opportunity, maybe she says no, <laughs> you still sinned. You didn't escape uh, the sin. All right, um, I want to talk about, uh, next slide please, I want to talk about, first of all, how the mind and the will affections logically function or how they should work together. And the mind, by the way, when we, when we talk about these categories uh, or, or what are called um, faculties of the soul, uh, we're really just looking at the soul from a different perspective. The perspective of the mind, we're thinking about you as an individual uh, discerning things, determining things, making judgments, examining and evaluating things. When we look at you from the perspective, when we look at an individual from the perspective of the affections, or sometimes we call that the heart, um, we, we think about desire, we think about what we delight in, and we think about what we hate and are revolted by, uh, our emotional attachments and rejections or revulsions. And also when we think about the will, We're thinking about the individual from the perspective of making choices and acting on things and rejecting things and so on. Now, how should these work together? Uh, In a logical sense, the mind is, is the watchman of the soul. He's there to make judgments and to make discernments about something, a situation, 
an action that is proposed, a thought that's proposed, an idea, a doctrine, whatever it is. The mind is, is, is intended to examine and to find out whether that thing is a good thing. And by good thing, we mean something that's pleasing to God. So the mind makes that determination. And then logically, the affections, once we've determined that this thing is a good thing, the affections then should desire that. Or if the mind determines, nope, this is not a good thing, this is bad, the affection should then reject and, and be repulsed by that thing. Well, once the mind says, oh, this is good, the affections say, yeah, I want that, then the will falls in line and, and chooses that. Um, of course, things don't always work exactly this way. But, um, but what's on the next slide? I don't think. Yeah. Um, really, in all practicality, these things go around. Some, sometimes you do things without even thinking, right? And, 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 and things that you just hate. And, and we don't really understand. We're, we are kind of a mess because of sin. And those things are being fixed and repaired. But, but, but I want you to, as just for the purpose of discussion, let's think through this logically in the way that the mind and the affections and the will should work. So, um, uh, the purpose of the mind is to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, Ephesians 5.10. The affections uh, from Romans 12.9 are to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. And then the will is to act on that. All right, so you've probably already guessed how deception works in this chain. If the flesh can convince your mind that a sinful action is actually, in some sense, good, and your affections can work up an appetite for that, then your will will give consent to it. So let's examine these things a little bit more carefully with respect to each of these three faculties. So the next slide, please. The first degree of temptation, as Owen describes it, is dragging away the mind. You've got to think of the mind as that um, guard, the guardian of the soul. How can you make a sentry drop his guard? Well, if you saw the movie uh, The Holy Grail, Monty Python, The Holy Grail, confession time, right? If you saw that... um, You know that in one scene in this movie, some of the knights believe that their attacker is nothing but a little bunny. And believing that this attacker is nothing but a little bunny, they drop their guard. And what happens? Several of them get their heads torn off by this little bunny. Okay, all right, that's a silly illustration. Uh, Couldn't resist it, but it gets the point across. The flesh probably has countless tactics tactics to convince us that a temptation is no real danger. And here are a few to watch out for. First of all, something called the half gospel. One way to convince your mind that there's no real danger in a particular situation is to weaken your sense of the wickedness of sin. The flesh distorts our thinking about the purposes of God's grace in order to make sin seem less sinful, less dangerous, and less threatening. The flesh weakens conviction against sin by separating the remedy of grace from the design of grace. The scriptures teach that God's design in showing mercy to us is to make us holy people. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I don't have the printed up there, so if you want to turn there, you can follow along or you can listen. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So that's the design of grace, to make us holy. But God also provides a remedy for our lapses. His loving pardon gives us peace, so that we know that if we do sin, as we said before from 1 John chapter 2, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So the flesh works this way, to make you forget that grace is given so that you will be holy. But you will remember that grace is given so that when you fall, 
everything will be okay, right? So then you can see how the thinking might go. Look, go ahead, indulge yourself. You get the pleasure of the sin, and then you'll be forgiven later. Well, that kind of thinking is, of course, an abomination to God. This should sound familiar. We, we started off by saying that we need to begin and work in everything, but especially in mortification, with the end in mind. And the end is to be like Christ, and the design of God's grace is to make us like Christ. And the flesh wants to distract us from that, kind, from, from that end and keep our minds focused only on the forgiveness itself. Now, if the flesh succeeds in this, then temptation to sin is a piece of cake. As a pun intended for all you gluttons. Temptation is a piece of cake. Your mind sees that the gospel, your mind sees the gospel only as a source of pardon from sin rather than as the source of deliverance from the power of sin. And, and once that happens, you will be more easily attracted by the pleasures of sin, convinced that any threats of danger have been carried away in Christ. The flesh uses this half gospel to inoculate us against obedience. But another way to convince you that there is no real danger is, is the strategy I call it could be worse. It could be worse. The flesh can weaken our sense of danger by, uh, uh, and our sense of a, the sinfulness of a particular sin by getting us to think of something that, think of that sin as something relatively small in comparison to something else, some other sin sin or in the grand scheme of things so that we'll pay less attention to it. So a tactic here, a strategy of the flesh would to get you to think about your specific sin and compare it to something that is obviously much worse, which, of course, isn't the point. But you're not listening. You're, you're not paying attention to the spirit here. You're paying attention to the flesh. He says uh, maybe you're holding a grudge against a brother. And you think, well, okay, I might be holding a grudge against him, but I'm not physically harming him. I'm not trying to have his knees broken or anything like that. Okay, so maybe I don't invite him to our care group. Maybe I don't pray for him. Maybe, okay, I've said a few hurtful things about him to others, but I'm I'm not hurting him. All right, I think you get the point. Another way, uh, besides convincing uh, the, uh, the guard that there's no real danger, another way to take out the guard, the mind, is to dis- disguise your attack as something good. And here I have in mind something like the Trojan horse. And I won't say anything about the Trojan rabbit. <laughs> I promise. Remember that um, they let their guard down big time because they believed that the Greeks were giving them a gift that was really to their benefit while hidden inside the wooden horse were actually those who would slay them. So one way the flesh does this Trojan horse sort of attack is by something what I, call, what I would call the exception clause. All right, to disguise your attack as something good. And it sounds like this. How could anything that feels so right possibly be wrong? The flesh will rarely try to convince a believer that adultery is wrong in the abstract. Excuse me. What did I just say? I think I said that wrong. The flesh will rarely try to convince a believer that adultery in general is right and good. But it is astonishingly successful in convincing many Christians that this particular instance of adultery is actually not such a bad thing. In fact, it might really be beautiful to God. Right? Because this is really true love. I mean, we're soulmates. I never should have married my wife anyway. Or you might be persuaded that your harsh treatment of a brother is not only justified, but demanded by God because your brother has sinned and God is using you to teach him a lesson. So the flesh can persuade us that what is evil, in fact, is good. And so we take it in. Flesh can also, if you want, to, you want to take out a guard, I mean, you've seen these action movies, you've got to take the guard out, you can create a diversion. That's another popular tactic, a classic and fundamental tactic. The flesh, the flesh uses uh, the tactic of a diversion uh, to drive away thoughts of God by filling it with thoughts of the world. 
The flesh knows that a mind cannot be fixed on, the, on both spiritual and earthly things. Colossians 3, 2, 1 John 2, 15. The main ploy of the flesh is to slip worldliness into the mind under the guide of necessity. Remember the story of the wedding banquet in Matthew chapter 22. When the feast is ready, the king sends his servants to gather the guests But each one has an excuse, something more pressing. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Matthew 22, 5. Working in your field obviously can be pleasing to God. He wants us to work hard. You can run a business to God's glory, even use it to extend his kingdom. But the flesh does something subtle here, taking what can be good and pleasing to God and using it to squeeze out thoughts of God and his kingdom. All right, so those are just some of the strategies to take out the mind, to distract the mind from its duty of being the watchman of the soul. But second, the second degree of temptation, next slide, is entangling the affections. James must have been, like uh, most of his older brother's other followers, an old fisherman. When he wrote that we are tempted when we are dragged away and enticed or lured and enticed, your, your translation might say, he used two hunting and fishing terms. The word translated dragged away or lured, whether you've got the NIV or the ESV or if you've got the New American Standard carried away, uh, means being trapped by a lure and pulled in by a line. And the word translated enticed means trapped or lured uh, into a snare by bait. These are very suggestive images of the way the flesh hooks our affections. If you simply drop a hook into the water, you're not likely to catch anything. Although if I had time, I could tell you a pretty funny story about that, but I won't. Uh, uh, the trap or the hook has to be concealed. And it'll be really effective if you've got a trap and you put something really yummy inside it, uh, yummy to the thing that you're trying to draw into it. So the hooker trap must be covered. It's got to be disguised. It's got to be made to look attractive to whatever thing you're trying to catch. It has to be decorated by a worm or a fly or a spinner or a plug. It has to be desirable and alluring. The bait doesn't just invite. It seduces. And in essence, James says that the flesh is a fisher of men. It seduces us with temptation. It dangles the pleasures of sin. In front of us, decorating those supposed delights until they look like something to sell your soul for. Something to die for until you can hardly see the hook or snare that they hide. The design of all of these trappings, of course, is to catch your imagination. The imagination is the mind's eye. And with the imagination, we paint pictures in our minds and we contemplate these pictures of how delightful things might be. If only I were with Bobby instead of my husband. Bobby's so understanding and gentle and attentive, but my husband just sits in front of the TV till he goes to sleep. Or maybe he's in there working on his video games. I'm only going to keep up these 80-hour weeks till I get that next promotion. Then we'll be set. Then we'll have what we need. And then I can spend more time with my kids and get involved in our congregation. So the imagination, you picture this the possibilities that justify your actions now, what you're working toward. The flesh fixes your imagination on something that will lead you into the clutches of sin. It wants you to dwell on and savor those intriguing possibilities until you can't stop thinking about them and until you start plotting and scheming ways to make that fantasy a reality. An amazing thing about this seduction is that the flesh can never really completely hide the hook from us. There is always, in the heart of a believer, at least in a faint, uh, in a faint sense, a resistance against whatever sin that is proposed. We know deep inside that the wages of sin is death, even when we plunge into evil ourselves. Even when... Uh, Peter was denying his Lord. He knew inside, he hated inside what he was doing. The third degree of temptation uh, is conceiving sin. Conceiving sin in the will. Obviously, we're responsible only for actions that we commit, for acts that we commit willingly with consent. Anything that we say or do or think or feel can only be sinful 
to the degree that we say or think or do or feel it willingly. The consent of the will completes the flesh's seduction of the soul. The mind is dragged away from its duty as the watchman. The affections are enticed and entangled. The will says, I do. And shortly after that, sin is conceived. Once the mind is convinced that something evil is good and the affections long for the evil, in the mistaken belief that it will bring pleasure, the will makes its disastrous choice. Now, there are two kinds of consent. We can make a distinction between two kinds of consent, active and passive consent. Active consent we can talk of as it's fully informed. It's done with forethought. And when we're talking about sin with active consent, we're talking about sins of the high hand. And these really aren't the kinds of sins that believers commit. It's full, absolute, complete, deliberate. It plunges into sin like a ship with the wind in full sail with the wind at its back. It's the kind of consent that unbelievers give to sin. And it's not what we need to think about. We need to think more about passive consent and understand that passive consent is real consent. I said that there's always this secret, secret reluctance, or sometimes it's hard to, even, hard to even see it and feel it and notice it within you when you're giving yourself to sin sometimes. But Galatians 5.17, remember, says that we have this struggle. It's not just that the flesh wars against the spirit, but what? The spirit within you wars against the flesh. And because you're born of the spirit... A believer will always have that resistance to sin. Always have that resistance to sin. When Peter denied his master, as I said, there was, always, there was something inside him that hated what he was doing. And when he heard that rooster crow, he burst into tears. Uh, that hatred of what he was, what he was doing um, just overflowed in tears. The wisdom of the believer is to learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit's resistance no matter how faintly it may echo in the conscience. And the folly of the believer is to ignore that voice repeatedly until we become deaf to it. Remember, passive consent is real consent. I said earlier that because of the nature of the flesh, the nature of the struggle, that in order to obey God in anything, we must, we must overcome the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And that means that refusal to mortify the flesh is in fact consent to sin. You can call it passive consent if you want, but it's still consent because God told you that if you don't put the flesh to death, you will sin. Remember Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The great physician has told us this in no uncertain terms. It may be painful, it may be difficult, it may be challenging, it may require every ounce of energy that you have to resist the flesh. But if we refuse to resist the flesh, we're giving our consent to sin. God created the will so that it only chooses and believes, only chooses what it believes to be good and agreeable to the soul, or at least better for or more agreeable to the soul than other options. Even a person who blows his brains out believes that that's the better option. He believes that that's the good. And this fundamental principle of the will is the basis of everything the flesh does in order to seduce us. It tries to persuade us that whatever this action is, that at this moment, in this time, this particular thing is actually good whether it's for pleasure or whatever it is that it's trying to persuade us. Next slide. So, we need to be cheating here. We already understand something about our end and our mission, which is to become more like Christ, especially in love. We understand that mortification is essential at every step. We know that we have activated that uh, invincibility or immortality feature. We've activated the unlimited ammo feature. God has given us everything that we need, including the spirit without measure. 
we received some inside information about how the flesh works by deceit. And we understand its modus operandi and how it wants to uh, drag away the mind, entangle the affections, and then um, uh, conceive will, uh, sin in the will. Now, some of you, next slide, some of you have figured out by now that the flesh won't normally hold, hold still for this sort of thing. This kind of analysis, right? Temptation often comes in, I, I really like this word, I don't think it's a real word, but John Owen uses it. He talks about surprisals. Temptation comes on you and suddenly, and you've, you've sinned almost even before you know you were tempted. And this sort of analysis... You don't have time to do it. That's why the concept of the, uh, the post-mortem is, which is a very good phrase in this case, by the way, is, is very important to us. Uh, I work at Dell, and I have a test engineering team. I manage a test engineering team. And we do something called a post-mortem when we finish a project. Right? We try to understand, as, as we complete the project, um, what went well. But we also try to understand what we did poorly, and we try to learn lessons from what we have done. And then when we start the next project that's similar to this one, then we go back and look at, that, at, the, at the report of that postmortem, and we say, oh, okay, we did this, and we did this, and this was bad. Don't do that. All right? So we try to learn. And we know that when we do this postmortem, that we have to be very careful not to stop at examining the symptoms. We have to get down to the root cause of what those issues were, because if we try to treat the symptom, we're really not going to get down to the bottom of things and, and to be able to prevent this bad thing from happening the next time. And this is a kind of meditation that um, I think that we need to learn how to practice. The meditation on our failures I think it's something crucial that you see in the wisdom literature in the Bible. I think in particular, if you look at the book of Proverbs and you think about the writers of the book of Proverbs, parents, right? Mostly fathers writing to their sons and daughters about life. And I think of that situation or or the description in Romans chapter 7. And this is kind of a homework assignment. Um, Go read chapter 7 of Proverbs. It's the description of of this young man that that the narrator says, I saw him out through the lattice. I saw him. It was, it was, it was getting to be dark, I think he says. It's about the, the end of day. And he's wandering near her house. Her is, she is, a, uh, a prostitute, an adulterous woman. So here's, here's this foolish young man. It's getting to be dark. He's out where he doesn't belong uh, and putting himself in harm's way. And then uh, the writer describes this seduction. How she flatters him, tells him how wonderful he is. She says, you know, my husband's gone on a long journey. He's, he's not going to be back for a month or however long it is. So we won't be caught. Um, uh, you know, I perfume my bed. All of these things. It's going to be wonderful. Let's spend the night in love. And as you read that description, think, how does this writer know about all of this? Well, it's very possible that he has experienced it himself. Right. And, and whether he did or not, we know that the writers of scriptures experienced these kinds of things and learning from that, analyzing okay, how was it that this woman seduced me? How was it that this man tricked me? How was it that I was taken in by my own flesh? How how did this really happen? Reflecting on that, spending time with that and asking God to to really teach you so that you learn real lessons, because remember, a righteous man falls seven times. You fall over and over and over, but you also get up. You also get up. Last slide. The, last, the thing I want you to remember today is that the game is rigged. Right? We're going to win. You need to go out of here with this confidence. I really, I really hate it when people tell me that they read The Enemy Within and they're discouraged. Because sometimes they do that. They, they tell me it's a, really a downer book because it's all about sin. But we need to remember that the game is rigged. God is with you. Take confidence that your salvation is certain. It's not just a a bare or naked salvation, but it's a salvation for the very purpose of becoming like Christ. And you will be like Christ in a way that we can't even imagine.
Take confidence in his great and precious promises that give you everything that you need for godliness. And under the guidance of the spirit and the counsel of your mentors, learn how to wield the weapons that God has given you. Victory is certain, so fight. Fight. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that your salvation is good. I thank you that you won't let go of us. I thank you that I thank you that you love us. Lord, strengthen us and help us never to give up, but to continue to fight as long as we live. In Christ we pray. Amen.